You're listening to Language Nerds to Earth, a podcast about linguistics, culture, travel, and how they're all connected. Now it's time to meet your language nerd hosts. One in China, one in Spain. It's Patrice and Rachel. Hello, everyone. I'm Patrice. And I'm Rachel. And welcome to Language Nerds to Earth. Yes. What episode are we on? Episode 46. Woo! What are we talking about today? Uh, We're going to talk about how migration influences languages. Very cool. Very cool. Super nerdy. Yeah. (laughs) Love it. So first, we're going to talk about what happens when languages come in contact due to migration and what changes tend to occur And then look at a couple of examples. So Germany now is a modern example of a language that's changing a lot from migration. Mm -hmm. And we're also going to take a look at English in the olden days when it was kind of a melting pot from Mm -hmm. migration and how that shaped the language. Yeah. But then we have a lost in translation moment from Taffy in Tennessee. Yeah. Thank you, Taffy. So excited. Oh, I love Lost in Translation moments. <laughs> Keep them coming, guys. Keep them coming. We love hearing from you. Yes. And not just our own stupidity all the time, you know? <laughs> we have enough of that. I know. In our day-to-day lives, we don't have yeah. to stress it on the podcast. So, so. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> But first, we have some language news that mm-hmm. I think is pretty interesting and it's pretty important yes so this is more or less breaking i guess for as much as language news can be breaking but basically in india this week they have had some issues regarding a revision of the languages that are going to be taught in different states so basically Mm -hmm. what does that mean I did not explain that very well, but let's keep going. So, well, there's been some tension in India, linguistically. Exactly. (laughs) Linguistic tension around the education of languages, because so in India, they are required to learn three languages, and the first version of this new legislation about the teaching of languages in Indian schools was apparently mistaken and it said the study of three languages by students in Hindi speaking states would continue to include Hindi and English and one of the modern languages from other parts of India while the study of languages by students in non-Hindi speaking states would include the regional language Hindi and English. Mm-hmm. So This idea that Hindi is being imposed on non-Hindi speakers is really unpalatable to a lot of people Hmm. who see it as sort of an oppressive language. The amount of Hindi speakers has increased in the past 30 years. So in 1971, there were about 36.9% of Indians spoke Hindi, and in 2011, 43.6%. So that's 7% increase, which is a lot of people, obviously. But yeah. it's still less than half of the population of the country. Right. So 
it's kind of like this idea that English was the colonial language. It was imposed. And it's also seen as a little bit elitist and exclusionary. Hmm. And Hindi is this other language that's kind of imposed on a lot of people who don't speak that language. And it's sort of like the ranking of the languages, you know what I mean? Yeah, so then it's like, in number one, English, number two, Hindi, number three, whatever you're, whatever yeah, you're taking. exactly. So no matter if you're from a Hindi-speaking state or not, you've got to learn it. So people were really upset, and there were a lot of protests due to mm-hmm. that. But they revised the legislation to say in keeping with the principle of flexibility students who wish to change one or more of the three languages they are studying may do so in grade six or grade seven so long as they are still able to demonstrate proficiency in three languages one language at the literature level in their board examinations during secondary school Hmm. so it sounds to me like they still do need to study hindi and english but and they can change at a certain point to another language of their choosing that's on offer. So they yeah. still have to study a little bit. And then each state can determine which languages are available to study. So there were some comments on this article from the Times of India. And one person said, Hindi is not our national language. Erase the false notion from your minds, you arrogant Hindi zealots. We yeah. have several national icons like tree and flow. Do you remember in episode seven, which was on bilingual cities? I think it was episode seven. Yeah. Yeah, we talked to one woman whose native tongue is Telugu and Hindi and English. So she's she has three native tongues. But she did talk about like the cultural differences between her area and a Hindi speaking area. Yeah. So we were talking a little bit before we were recording, but the differences in Indian culture, it's such a huge country and they have so many rich traditions and vastly different languages, like choosing one like Hindi or English, which is definitely not a native language, um, is really quite backwards if you think about it. Yeah, I mean, it's it's basically saying... You have to do what we what we decide, what the state decides is best for your culture or tradition. Mm-hmm. And, and this one is better than the rest, or this one is more important. Yeah, yeah. And saying one language is more important than another is like saying one person is more important than another. It's just, it's extremely subjective. And yeah, deciding that your opinion is right is not what we would hope would be a prominent view in the 21st century. Yeah. Actually, I'm just looking at the comments again, and someone said in all caps, imposing Hindi is like imposing British back on our soil. Yeah, exactly. People have very strong feelings about it, and it's true because language is such a source of power, and not having your language as one of the dominant languages or being forced to learn another language maybe puts you at a disadvantage or it puts you at a lower level than people who are speaking the language of the, of power. We've talked a bit mm-hmm. about this before too, but yeah. 
This is like one of our favorite soapboxes. Yeah. I think with good reason. (laughs) But I mean, yeah, I thought this article was really interesting and a really important piece of news, I think, in the language world. Definitely. Yeah. So it'll be interesting to see where this goes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Keep an eye on it. Yeah. So uh, let's get into our main topic then. Let's do it. This week, we are going to talk about how migration influences language. So Rachel's going to start us off first. So if you think about it, a person who migrates to another country where they don't speak the language may never speak up to a full proficiency or may never gain full fluency, but their children do. And a lot of times they will speak similar to the way that their parents will speak as it identifies them as a member of a certain community. So I really liked what one author was saying. He compared the Kitzdeutsch, which is what is spoken among people in Germany, especially in Berlin, in places like Kreuzberg, which is very international. And it's a dialect, basically. And we're going to talk a bit more about that. But of Arab and Turkish, especially, um, immigrants. And Mm. so basically what happens is it's simplified. It's German is a complicated language. And when people learn it, they simplify it. Mm -hmm. And then that sticks around. Yeah, it's actually extremely interesting to look at this from the opposite perspective because you know we've talked about pigeons and creoles before Mm -hmm. about how when you have a mix of two different languages the pigeon is the first generation of that languages mixing those languages mixing so it's basically just taking words from each language to make a common tongue in the absence of a common tongue such as german in this case Mm -hmm. but for example you bring in uh, in haiti the native tongue with french you put them together and first you get a pigeon and then the second generation creates a creole which is when the children of the pigeon speakers add their own grammatical rules Mm -hmm. but here we do have a common tongue the common tongue is german But nobody's a native speaker of German, so the result is this new kind of... It's dumbed down a little bit, and dumbed down in the sense that the rules of German, of which there are many, are understood to not be implemented, which is really fascinating. Yeah, I liked this author. He compared it to the dialect of African Americans, not as a way of not knowing how to speak, but as a way of belonging to a community. Mm, um, yeah. So it's sort of like paying homage to, he said, the origins of where people came from and in what context. So when people were brought as slaves, they were not given an education. And so they learned to speak this sort of English, of course, but in a modified way. And their children obviously learned a more clear English, but kept that sort of tradition. And it's sort of similar in this way, because if you study and you go to a German school, of course you know how to speak properly, but it signifies 
if you speak a certain way that you're part of that community. And you might not use it in all contexts. You might use it when you're among that social group. I have never heard that perspective, but I really, really like it. Yeah. I think it offers a great context. And by the way, the author is a linguistics professor at Columbia. So mm, cool. And he is African American, so <sighs> pretty cool. Yeah. That's my mind blown <laughs> being blown. <laughs> cool. <laughs> so he also mentioned Indonesian and so this is a language that has a lot of non native speakers. About actually only one in four speakers learned it as their mm-hmm. first language. So there are lots of different vernacular forms and things that aren't proper in the rules of the language, but it's, you know, such a vast country with lots of different islands. So even when people do learn it as their first language, they might speak it like their parents or their grandparents who learned it as a non-native speaker. That's interesting because usually when when kids learn a language from non-native speakers, they usually learn it fluently. Like, mm-hmm. right? They like a kid who's deaf and learns sign language from his or her non-deaf parents will become fully proficient and fluent in the language. But you're saying in Indonesia, it's learned just the way their grandparents spoke it, so it's not. They don't sound like native speakers? Is that what you're saying? They sound like native speakers, but they use elements that their grandparents or their parents might have used that are grammatically incorrect or different versions. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's the same thing as Kriegsdeutsch then. Exactly. Basically. Wow, that's really cool. Yeah, and I don't think it's the case all the time, so it's going to be interesting to look at when and where. Yeah. Definitely. I think there are the different pockets where this has occurred or is occurring. Right, right. So maybe it has something to do with the history of their grandparents migrating to Indonesia. Like how how they were brought over and uh, the kind of exposure to the language that their grandparents might have had. Yeah, and I I don't know, honestly, a lot about Indonesian, but I think maybe it's because it's an archipelago. Yeah. Maybe there are just so many languages and then Indonesian was chosen, sort of like we talked about at the beginning. Yeah. And maybe that's why there are so many non-native speakers. It's also a huge Muslim country. And Mm -hmm. I mean, it's a really interesting mix. I've been to Bali. Bali is like the most touristy part of Indonesia, I would say. But it's Mm -hmm. a really strange mix of Buddhism and Hinduism and Muslims. So it could also have to do with religious differences across the country. That's totally possible as well. Yeah. Well, from there, let's go back to German and talk about how German has morphed just in the last 50 years and especially in the last 10 years with the refugees from Arab countries Mm -hmm. and some really interesting stuff. So... This author, kind of along the same lines of what you were saying, Rachel, said that whenever two languages meet, a trend towards simplification is observed. Mm -hmm. And I really liked that quote because it made me think of Icelandic. 
<laughs> and how there's yes. been no no exposure to other languages and so it's just stayed very complicated yeah and no i think their dedication to keeping it original like very pure driving factor there too exactly yeah so German, uh, even though originally it was a lot of different languages that were united under one language, there, uh, about a hundred years ago, there was a movement toward keeping the language pure and keeping the people a certain color and race, but they've obviously swung the pendulum, and that's nowhere near what it is right now. Yeah. But there have been... You might remember when there were a lot of refugees fleeing Syria, which there still are. Angela Merkel said, okay, anybody who can make it to Germany is welcome. Mm -hmm. But the result is this huge influx of migrants. So there's a lot of Arabic influence on the culture. And also because the language is so complicated to learn, people in the culture... Even native speakers who grew up in Germany often don't use it the correct way. We've talked about the four cases in German that uh, I won't go through again. Because I think (laughs) it gets really boring for people who don't know what I'm saying. But um, the fourth one is called the genitive tense, and it's the most complicated one. Uh, But it's also the least used one, and that's slowly being eliminated from speech, especially among the youth and the quote-unquote undereducated, who are like, I can just replace it with the third tense. But one example of how Arabic has influenced German is people will say, like, yalla, instead of saying los gates, which comes from the Arabic word for let's go. Mm. Also, lan comes from the Turkish lanes, which means, like, dude, or tup mm. in German. Also, of course, as is very normal in any language, the youth and technology are changing the language, and globalization as well. So there are 7,500 words that come from other languages, mostly English, and 79% of those have replaced the German word that's used. Wow. Yeah, that's, you know, I think anglicisms are really common in a lot of different languages. Like, I know here in Spain, they they use quite a few, and people often replace them. And it's sort of a trendy thing as well. Yeah, Um, a trendy way to talk. Yeah, I don't know if it's so much related to migration, because I don't think it's because there are a lot of English speakers living in Spain, more... I think it's English is cool. It's the language to learn mm-hmm. and you sound educated and cool supposedly if you use words that come from English mm-hmm. and sort of like we use words that come from French to sound, you know, sophisticated. Yeah. But I don't know if it's quite the same in this case, but it is kind of interesting to look at like and people start to forget what the Spanish word would be. Yeah, but I mean, as we're going to get into next, that's what happened to English as well. Like, Mm -hmm. English is a language of intense migration. But yeah, I don't really see that in China. I don't see a Mm -hmm. lot of... 
sometimes a kid in school will say something like, what the fuck? <laughs> and I'm like, no, we don't say that. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> or sometimes people will say, oh my God. But usually Chinese kind of like Icelandic just tries to use words from its own vocabulary to make like a Chinese version of the English word. So for example, instead of saying Coca-Cola, they use four Chinese characters that together make Ke-ke-ke-le. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Sort of like in Korean. Do they do they... that in Korean too? Yeah, I mean, it's spelled in Korean like chocolate. Oh, yeah. But um, like each of those characters in Chinese has its own meaning. So like ke is right. thirsty and le is happy. And I don't remember the other ones. Happy thirsty. <laughs> yeah. Like cola, th- happy thirsty, yeah. Interesting. And make, together it makes cola, yeah. So as a result of all of this linguistic change in Germany, the linguist author of this article said he thinks somebody learning German in 30 years will become aware that in practice many of the quote-unquote mistakes they make won't be seen as such or even corrected anymore. So he thinks they won't have to bother with so many grammatical cases, which is big news for German learners all over the world. <laughs> Just wait 30 yeah. years. Yeah, it's that's a really good point. Yeah. I did have something else to say. So like in Germany, a lot of these similar kinds of dialects have come up in Sweden and Denmark and Norway and Holland. And these new versions of old languages, like we talked about with German or with Indonesian, are called multi-ethnolects. Oh, that's so interesting. Which, you know, multi, many, ethno, ethnic. Ethnicity, yeah. Mm -hmm. And lects, dialects. So dialects from ethnicity. And apparently in Senegal also... There are eight genders that are unpredictable in Wolof. And so non-native speakers and their kids actually just use one. And Wow. So that's like another example of how language gets simplified. Eight genders. Yeah. Are you kidding me? I mean, <laughs> that's a lot for yeah. a non-native speaker to learn. So you create these pockets of a different dialect. But it's, as we said earlier, it's not a Creole or a Pidgin because they're not creating a new language. They're just creating a different way of speaking the first language. The same linguist from Colombia also said about the African-American dialect that it's not everything that's simplified. It's certain things. Nobody says mouses for the irregular of mouse. But there are some things, like not using the auxiliary verb does, like why she do that, why she say that, Mm. instead of using the auxiliary verb. It's a simpler way of talking, (sighs) but it's also not that people don't know how to talk properly. Wow. That is really interesting. Yeah. So if you think about it as sort of a social construct, I think it makes a lot of sense. Definitely. The same I think you could see in the United States in areas that have a lot of Latinos that 
people say some words in Spanish, but a lot of times they speak English or they go between the two. Yeah. So kind of in an incorporation in that sense of different vocabulary. It's not necessarily yeah. simplification, I think. Although there may be some as well. Yeah, I mean, I think that's kind of a multi-ethnolect in that case as well. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe a bi-ethnolect in yeah. like Miami or El Paso might have that kind of stuff too. Yeah. That's really cool. I'm glad you found that article. Yeah, it was really interesting. So a few weeks ago, or maybe a few months ago, my Aunt Patty in Bangkok sent a really cool article about this exhibition that was in London of the four oldest books in the English language. So something around 80% of all surviving English survives in these four books. And That's crazy. Yeah, it's totally crazy. And the period that these books come from spans about 600 years, which is like from Chaucer to now. So like, imagine if all of the representation of English from Chaucer to now was just from four books. Like that's such a huge time and so much has happened during that time. Mm-hmm. Imagine you have uh, one Shakespeare, one Dickens, one Stephen King, and <laughs> somebody else. That's all that you have. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, it's like a lot. Those are very, very different things. Yeah. And if we go back to what we talked about, the evolution of English on those episodes, we can't really understand English from even 600 years ago very well, and definitely not from a thousand years ago. Try to read Beowulf. Even the adaptations, I mean, yeah, older adaptations, we don't understand Middle English, right? we just yeah. don't, which is exactly. from about 700 years ago, seven, 800, something like that. Something like that. We should we should go check out that podcast. Apparently, it's pretty good. <laughs> That's what they say. Like Rachel said, go check out the episode on the evolution of English. I believe it's number 16, somewhere around there. Mm -hmm. But we get real nerdy and into it. And it's two parts. So it's you two get parts. Lots. <laughs> yeah. So English actually comes from Anglo-Saxon, and Anglo comes from the Angles. So the Angles were one of the main Germanic people who settled in Great Britain in the post-Roman period. And the Angles came from Anglia, which is a peninsula off the Jutland Peninsula, which is part of Denmark. So English comes from a part of Germany, which is now part of Denmark. So it's, it goes really, really, really far back. But that's where it comes from. So before we wrote like we do now in the Latin alphabet, English was written in runes, actually, because they were easier to carve into wood, which was the main way of writing. And mm. they're kind of up and down and maybe a few diagonals, basically. Mm -hmm. That's really cool. If you look at these pictures, and we'll put the link on the show notes, they have a picture of Old English carved on a jug of ale, or I don't know, it's on a piece of wood. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it's the original English, and 
It looks like Elvish or some other fictional language. Yeah, it's really cool. And apparently the earliest fragments of the English language are on this 5th century cremation urn in mm-hmm. in Norfolk, which is written A-L-U, which they think probably means ale. So <laughs> something like, in the afterlife, you also want ale. Yeah. <laughs> I like that a lot. I know. They're like, ale. <laughs> Imagine if, like, aliens came to our civilization and, the like, the only evidence they found of us was, like, beer. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I mean, they want a good drink once they get wherever they're going, so. Yeah. Can't blame them for that. Right. <laughs> So, Anglo-Saxons cremated their dead and interred their remains in earthenware vessels. There are about 20 objects with runic inscriptions from before 650. So, the thing that Rachel was talking about is the earliest example, one of the earliest examples of English. So, 5th century, so in the 400s. That's really cool. Yeah. So, this exhibit also includes an 11th century English map of the world, which is totally adorable. (laughs) So the Holy Roman Empire is in the middle. The Mediterranean is right next to it. Africa is in the upper right corner. Britain and Ireland are squeezed into the bottom left-hand corner. So the map, it regards Britain as being at the far edge of the world, but still tied to the center by the Christian religion. Right, so... We can tell from that that religion in those days was hugely important. And in fact, Latin was one of the five languages spoken during this time around 1000, between 1000 and 1100. Mm-hmm. So you have Latin, the educated people spoke that, the Scots, and their language became Gaelic, the Britons, whose language became Welsh, Cornish, and Breton. And the Anglo-Saxon, and then they developed what would become English, yeah, modern English, as well as the Picts, but we don't know much about them. Yeah. So the episode on the evolution of language kind of picks up from the Anglo-Saxons, and that's when we look at how English kind of... English and German kind of separated and then over time developed into two different languages. But that's not what this episode's about. So we'll stop talking about the evolution of English. (laughs) (laughs) It's, I mean, it's important because, again, it's based on who had the power. Yeah. And it was the Anglo-Saxons at the time. And that's, that's the reason that we speak English. But exactly. It's so interesting. It is. And at the same time that these five languages were being spoken, the Viking invasion was happening of Britain. So you get Danish as well. So it's just a whole... Melting pot? Yeah, a melting pot, let's say. (laughs) A conglomeration of a lot of different languages that are not similar. Yeah, it's so cool. So one way we can see this is the days of the week, which comes mostly from the Anglo-Saxons. The Babylonians named Sunday and Monday after the sun and the moon. So there you go. But also the Anglo-Saxons named our other days. So Tuesday comes from Tu, which is the Anglo-Saxon name for Chir, which is the Norse god of war. 
And Tyr was one of the sons of Odin, or Woden, which is the origin of Wednesday. Mm, yeah. And then Thursday originates from Thor, which is the god of thunder. And Friday is the wife of Odin, Frigga, which represents love and beauty. And you know what? Friday does represent love and beauty because it's <laughs> I was sort about of weekend. to say that's so appropriate. <laughs> <laughs> and then Saturday comes from Saturn, which is the ancient Roman god of fun and feasting, which is also very true. So true. I mean, yeah. I don't know if we chose that on purpose for the weekend days, but it's appropriate. Yes, very much so. So, if you've watched the TV show on Netflix, I believe it was, The Last Kingdom, have you seen it? I haven't. It's really good. It's about when England was broken up into these different regions and the Danes were trying to stake their claim and the Anglo-Saxons were mm-hmm. were trying to take over. And so then you had King Alfred, who... Um, kind of declared himself the first king of England, like uniting everybody together under one. That's what he wanted, under one nation. Mm-hmm. And so he was very educated and he loved reading. So the show is really good if you want to learn more about it. He's depicted as actually very sickly in the show, but he was actually a pretty strong ruler. And in the last four years of his reign, he instituted a program to promote the vernacular. So he was actually the first king to use the phrase king of the English. And English at the time was a very vernacular, lesser language. So like Rachel said before, the educated people spoke Latin. Yeah. And English was not the language of the educated elite. So Alfred had a lot of books translated to English, and he knew he needed to promote literacy to help constitute a United Kingdom of England. Yeah, which is sort of similar to when people started using the vernacular of other languages to really cement that language, because writing was really the way of, I guess, spreading the language. Or not spreading it, but solidifying it. Exactly. Like Dante with Italian. I mean, it's not exactly Mm -hmm. modern Italian, but it's close, Yeah, from what I understand. Yeah, true. And I mean... Going back to the beginning of the episode, there are a lot of books written in African-American vernacular in the Mm -hmm. U.S. trying to kind of solidify it Mm -hmm. as well as its own worthy dialect of the language. Yeah, it's a valid way of speaking. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And just to go back to the idea of migration, then we have the Normans who came to England which I don't even think this talks about, but that's where we get a lot of words as well from the French. Of course, yeah. We've talked about pork and beef and things like that, and that was Mm -hmm. sort of the elite way of speaking then. And we haven't even gotten into, partly because there is a linguistic barrier, I tried to do some research on, it feels like island nations are particularly subject to linguistic variation due to migration. Mm -hmm. So I would like to know more about maybe how Japan has been influenced and even like Fiji, like the Pacific Islands, they have a lot of different languages 
that kind of coexist with each other. People come from all over the world to live there, so. Hmm. Hmm. If anybody would like to give their two cents, we are always welcoming emails and comments. Yeah, we really just scratched the surface today. I mean, it's a really deep topic and there's a lot to be said politically about the ramifications or even economics on this topic or ethnicity. I mean, there's just so many different aspects to it that there's no way we could cover in one episode. But Let us know what you think, and if you happen to have examples or different ideas, we'd love to hear. Yeah, definitely, especially if it's affected you. If you're a migrant that's gone to another country, or if your language you feel has been changed, especially recently, from migration, that'd be really cool if we heard from you. It would be. So... We have a Lost in Translation moment. Yes, we do. From Taffy. Taffy. Okay. I haven't heard this. I'm very excited. Hi, my name is Taffy, and I have a Lost in Translation moment. Let's get right into it. Okay, so my husband is from China, and when we were still dating, I went to China to meet some of his family, and there was one particular meeting that was a little bit more high pressure because this family was kind of on the richer side, and they had a daughter who was hoping to study abroad in America, so they wanted us to become, like, BFFs and this kind of thing, Um, and, like, his uncle also sort of had a business deal with with my husband's dad, so anyway, it was kind of uh, more like you sort of need to make a good first impression sort of situation. So we met them at this fancy restaurant in the city where they lived and I really had to pee by the time we got there. So like I shook hands with all of them. I was like, Hey, Nihal, Nihal, I'm Gashi Minchini and all this stuff. And then I asked Julio, and in Chinese, that means like, is there a bathroom here? And they all kind of looked around like sort of befuddled. And then I asked again and they were just sort of still like, uh, 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 and kind of frantically looking around. Then my husband asked me in English, he said, what are you, what are you asking for? And I said, a bathroom. I, I need to go to the bathroom. And he goes, oh, wei sheng jian, julio wei sheng jian ma. And I was like, that's what I just said. And they were all just like, oh, bathroom. Okay. So I went to the bathroom and I asked my husband later, what did it sound like I was asking for? He said it sounded like I was asking for a wei sheng jian which is a feminine hygiene product. So great first impression. Wonderful. Everybody loved me. I'm sure. <laughs> 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 yeah. Uh, yeah, Wei Sheng is hygiene, and I guess I didn't, I don't know the word for feminine product, but that sounds, that makes sense. <laughs> I mean, they're kind of related, you could say, but yeah, um, that's I'm sure not what she was trying to say with <laughs> to, uh, the first thing she said to his family. But oh my god, that's hilarious! I love that they were all looking around at each other like, um, <laughs> weird foreign girl, like. Does anybody have a tampon? Hi, nice to meet you. Does anyone have a tampon? <laughs> oh, thank you so much, Taffy. That was beautiful. It was amazing. Thank you for your loss in translation and not making us feel alone. <laughs> 
Yes, wonderful. Yes, to submit your Lost in Translation moment, please go to languagenerdsdoearth.com and click on our LIT slash contact section. You can record your voice there like Taffy did, or you can just shoot us a little message, and that's cool too. All right, well, let's wrap things up. So subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcasts, and you won't miss any. Make sure you're following us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Pinterest. And leave us a review on iTunes. Also tell your friends if you're enjoying it. Word of mouth helps spread the show. So we will see you next week when we talk about mental illness across cultures. Hmm. Yeah. Tune into that. That's going to be a really interesting one, I think. Yeah, I think so, too. All right. See you next time. All right. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Hello. Mic check. Welcome Mic to check. Language Nerds to Earth. check. Looks good. I said pinion, not pigeon. Oh, yeah. I couldn't figure out why that sounded wrong. <sighs> it's too much work to go back and correct myself. <laughs> Pigeon? Pin pigeon. Maybe I'll have maybe I'll figure it yourself out. in there. <laughs> yeah. I'm gonna sneeze. <laughs> Rachel has to sneeze and she's just staring at me. <laughs> <laughs> yep, that's me. Oh my god, it's so painful. Oh, go away. Go like this. No, I'm okay. <laughs> oh. <laughs> no, it's pretty much gone now. To help constitute in a United Kingdom of England. A United Kingdom of... Ah! A United Kingdom of England. <laughs> yeah, Norman. You're right. Normandy, yeah. Right? Okay. I always get confused with the freaking people in England. Anyway. <laughs> I know. I know. I mean, it was all They're so com- long ago. And, um, and their history is so confusing mm-hmm. to me. Like, so many different people vying for power. It's like Game of Thrones yeah, and stuff. Yeah, it's exactly like Game of Thrones, yeah. Word of mouth helps spread the word. Oh, my God, I can't <laughs> talk today. Uh, <laughs> me neither. I'm having a lot of trouble, but I prefer word of mouth helps spread the word. Helps spread the word, yeah. <laughs>